Abraham Lincoln said this, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. Now, it's a a great encouragement to us to picture a president kneeling desperately in prayer. It's a great thought, isn't it? It's a little discouraging to think that prayer seems often to be the last resort. The prayer comes only after other resources have been exhausted. Prayer comes only after there's nowhere else to go. Only after other opinions and wisdom seem wrong or insufficient, then we pray. How vital is prayer to your life? How central is it to your life? Do you pray first or only after dot, dot, dot? Or perhaps not much at all. God does not intend prayer to be the last resort for His people. Because of the realities in the world in which we live. Because of those realities, prayer must be central to the life of every believer. Prayer must be central to your life and to mine. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning as we return to Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please open to the Gospel of Matthew, the 6th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the, in the pew in front of you. And when you've found your place, let's stand together so we can hear read the Word of the living God. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says here, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do now what we have read about, and that's come before you, because we are so needful uh, of prayer, so needful of the communication that takes place between us, your sons and daughters, and you, our Father, through prayer. And so we pray now, Lord, we ask that your word and the truth of it would go forth in power. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would give us understanding of your truth. We pray, Lord, that 
you would open our ears to hear what you have to say about prayer. We pray that we would be convicted to pray more and more. The prayer would be central to and vital in all of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And this morning we're going to consider just one question, and that one question is this. Why is prayer so vital? Why, why is prayer so vital? And prayer is vital because of a very simple principle. And it's a principle that we've been talking about here at Redeemer for now almost the 20 years of our existence. It's a principle that we've seen in action as we've sought to do the, the work of the Lord globally, as we sought to do gospel ministry here in the city of Charleston. And this is the principle. Whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. The principle is this. Whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. Opposing God, preventing or perverting the good things and the good ways of God, that's the purpose to which Satan has dedicated his existence. He opposes the glory of God. When Satan himself was an angel in heaven, he had great glory. But the glory he had wasn't enough for him. He wanted more glory. He wanted the glory that belongs to only and ever to the one and only true and living God. And so he attempted to steal that glory for himself. And for that, he was cast out of heaven. So that now, whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. At the risk of getting ahead of myself, a quick look ahead at the Lord's Prayer reveals this opposition for us. The prayer begins with our Father, our Father who is in heaven, the will of the Father being done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer ends with what? The evil one, with temptation, the temptation to, to turn away from the will of God. So there it is, whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. It's why Scripture talks to us about Jesus, the Christ, as well as the Antichrist. 1 John chapter 2, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. See, many, many Antichrists have come. And this is John writing. See, it's perpetual. It's ongoing. The opposition that we experience in this world, it's a reality. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. See, whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. The opposition is why the Apostle Paul writes to us about our own lives in Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so prayer is vital in our lives because of these realities in our world, 
The world in which you and I live, the opposition of the enemy or temptation to sin in our own lives. We don't really have to go out of Matthew 5 and 6 to see the opposition. Look with me, if you will, at the last verse of chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus says there, You must therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we looked at this verse a couple of months ago, and we noted that Jesus is not calling you and me here to moral perfection. If he had that as a goal, that we could be perfect and sinless, he wouldn't teach us in a few verses to to ask the Lord to forgive us our debts. We, We wouldn't have any. The word Jesus uses for perfect, be perfect, means to be complete or to be fully developed. That means that wholeness is what the Lord has for us. Wholeness in our lives. And that wholeness comes about when with all our being, all of our being, by the grace of God, We are wholly oriented toward and seeking to be like God who is himself perfect, whole, and complete. So this this kind of perfection, this wholeness, this completeness in our, our lives, that's what God has ordained for us. But whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. So now look with me in chapter 6, verse 1. And the first word that we read is beware. So don't miss it. The last word in chapter 5 is be perfect. The first word, beware. Be perfect, beware. Jesus says beware because he knows that the enemy will oppose God's ordained way of living for us. He will pervert it. So in verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus puts forward this principle. That's going to govern the next 18 verses, but not only those verses, but all of our lives. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, we looked at this last week, and we saw that righteous deeds, charitable acts, good works, they're assumed by Jesus. He doesn't even make a case for them here because there's no case to be made. It's not worth making. Jesus assumes that those who love him, those who follow him, will do good works. How could they not? How could those who are by the free grace of God redeemed and reclaimed and restored and renewed and spirit indwelled and new creations, how can people like that, like we are, not freely do righteous deeds, good deeds for other people. It seems like it would be impossible not to do them. But what is possible is for us to do good things for the wrong reasons. And so if Satan, who always opposes what God ordains, cannot prevent us from doing good works, then he can at least prevent us from doing good works for the right reason, which we saw last week was for the glory of God. And so the enemy attempts to stir up within us and our hearts the same passion that controls his life, to steal glory from our Father. Sure, go ahead, do good deeds, but do them for your glory. Do them for praise. Do them for applause. Do them for pats on the back. Do them so other people will be in awe of you. 
and how wonderful you are and all the good things that you do. So the principle, verse 1, do good deeds, but do them for the right reason. When we get to verse 2, Jesus begins to apply this general principle to real life. The real life of the people who are listening to him gathered around him on the mountain, which are for the most part, if not exclusively, Jewish people. So look, Jewish people had three ways of demonstrating that they were good people, righteous people, pious people. They were actually called the three pillars of piety. And they were almsgiving, giving to the poor. They were prayer and they were fasting. Almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Each of these good activities. Each of these activities that God ordains for our lives. God wants His people to do these three things. And so Satan opposes them. And Jesus highlights that opposition in verses 1 through 18 by contrasting each pillar of piety, what should not be done, with what should be done. And in each pillar, Jesus contrasts what the hypocrites do with what those who love God should do. And the word hypocrite in Jesus' day simply meant this, an actor. Actors were actually hypocrites. They were pretenders. Actors pretend to be who they are not. And that's why actors in our world get paid so much money. It's because they are really, really good at making us believe that they are really, really someone who they really, really aren't. And so Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be actors. Don't be pretenders. They act like. They pretend as if what they do is is for God when really it's for themselves and their own advancement and their own reputation and their own standing and their own glory. God has not ordained His people to be hypocrites, actors, or pretenders. So, that's what Satan attempts to turn us into. To turn us into hypocrites, pretenders, actors. God has instead ordained that we should be real. We should be real. We should be passionate for Him. That's why He's given us His Spirit, His fire. Back in Matthew chapter 3 records the words of John the Baptist about Jesus. I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Samuel Chadwick was a a famous Methodist pastor at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century. And he wrote this, The soul's safety is in its heat. The soul's safety is in its heat. Truth without enthusiasm Morality without emotion, ritual without soul, make for a church without power. Destitute of the fire of God, nothing else counts. Possessing fire, nothing else matters. So in these verses, Jesus is is bringing the heat. He's putting the heat, the soul the enthusiasm, the emotion in each of these activities in which people were already engaged hypocritically. Jesus, as He is so dedicated to doing, reclaims these pillars of piety and He renews them and He restores them and He redirects them toward God for God's glory. And so He addresses the first pillar as we looked at last week in verses 2 through 4. 
Again, as we saw, Jesus did not say, if you give to the poor, he said, when you give to the poor. And then through his teaching here, he makes sure that when we give to those in need, we're not doing it for ourselves, but we're doing it for the glory of the Lord. This week, this morning, we move to the second pillar, and that is prayer. Look in verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray. So once again, Jesus assumes that prayer is going to be part of the life of everyone who loves him and follows him. So Jesus doesn't say, if you pray. Jesus says, when you pray. It's as if there is no such category as a disciple who does not pray. So each of us have to think about that one for a moment. Has Jesus assumed rightly about you? Do you pray? How much do you pray? How often? About what? Is prayer a given for your life? Once again, Jesus assumes that it is. And so now he reclaims and he renews and he restores and reorients prayer to the glory of God. The vitality of prayer. And the centrality of it is highlighted right here, even in the very place where Jesus positions the teaching on prayer in his preaching. So follow this. This section on prayer in general and the Lord's Prayer in particular, they are in the middle of the middle unit of the Sermon on the Mount. One commentator has pointed this out, that this teaching on prayer is the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. So the way that Jesus preaches it anyway, prayer is the center of the center of the center. Surely then it's vital that prayer would be central to the lives of all those who love the Lord. And so, our principle kicks into action, right? Whatever God ordains, which is the centrality of prayer in our lives, Satan opposes. If he cannot prevent us from praying, then he will pervert it. He will turn it into a hypocritical act, something that's not real, something with no fire, something with no emotion, no enthusiasm, no soul. The opposite of real or authentic so again in verse 5, Jesus says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. In Jesus' day, prayer had become rote. Prayer could simply be a formality that never, ever engaged the heart. The Jews had formulaic prayers that they prayed before meals. There were different kinds of meals for different prayers for different kinds of meals. Uh, According to Charles Quarles in his commentary, different mealtime prayers were prescribed depending on the menu, with one prayer for fruit, another for vegetables, another for bread, another for unripe fruit, sour wine, or locusts. You know, it's been a long time since I've had a good locust. Fried, nice, crispy. Rabbis debated the amount of food that was necessary to require a meal, a prayer at all. 
And the consensus among the rabbis was that if the food amounted to the size of an olive, then prayer was mandatory. Particular prayers were prescribed for such occasions as approaching the site of a miracle, seeing a shooting star, experience an earthquake, a clap of thunder, or a flash of lightning. A particular prayer was prescribed when one saw mountains, hills, seas, rivers, desert. One prayer was prescribed for the reception of good news, a different prayer prescribed for the reception of bad news. All these different kind of prayers. Jews were also expected to pray 18 benedictions three times every day. In the morning, at noon, and in the evening. One should not stop in praying this benediction, even if he were greeted by the king or if a snake coiled around his leg. Please imagine. Oh, Lord, I'm praying anyway. So these prayers were memorized recitations, and they were dictated by the clock or the food or whatever was before you. And getting the right prayer at the right time was of utmost importance. That's how they prayed in Jesus' day. But Jesus was also a good Jew, and he prayed. But Jesus demonstrated that prayer was not rote or emotionless. Mark tells us in chapter 1, that rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And it wasn't a quick prayer or a rote prayer. Recitation while others are listening. Jesus was all alone. For how long? I don't know. But I know this. For long enough for the disciples to wake up, get ready for the day, perhaps have a little bite of breakfast, discover Jesus is not there, and then to go off looking for him. Mark adds this detail because Simon Peter told him this is what happened, that, that Peter and those who were with him searched for Jesus, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. seems to me that Jesus must have been lost in prayer. Luke tells us that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He tells us that in these days that Jesus went to the mount to pray. And all night he continued in prayer. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. Luke tells us that now it happened once as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do you say I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. But Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one. And he went on to tell them what was to happen to him, that he was to be killed. And on the third day he would rise again from the dead. Eight days later, after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Please notice that these vital moments of Jesus' life are accompanied by prayer. The choosing of the apostles, the men to whom Jesus would entrust the gospel, And the building of his church, 
That didn't happen until a night had been spent in prayer. Peter's confession, the first great confession of who Jesus is, the Christ of God, it came in conjunction with prayer. The Spirit of God revealed that truth to Peter. Telling the disciples that he would be killed and would rise again on the third day, a story hard to believe, but it's the gospel story that we know and love, came about in conjunction with prayer. When Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of the disciples, when a glimpse of heavenly glory, please imagine, was seen here on earth, it was while Jesus was praying. These are the vital, monumental moments in the life of Jesus and his disciples, and they are accompanied by prayer. Why would we expect? Why would we expect that anything vital or monumental would happen in our lives or here in our church apart from prayer? Luke chapter 11 tells us that Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Think about it. These disciples had heard prayers all their lives. They had been praying prayers, perhaps some of the ones that we talked about earlier for vegetables or unripe fruit or locusts, whatever. But when they heard Jesus pray, they knew that something was different. In comparison to Jesus' prayers, they must have concluded that they did not really know how to pray at all. So they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. They saw and heard the intensity of Jesus' prayers. I know that Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he died, I know that that was a special moment in history. Because God the Son is about to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world, for for your sins and for mine. And God ordained the cross of Christ before the foundation of the world. And so whatever God ordains, Satan opposes. And Satan tempted Jesus to turn from the cross, to let the The cup of the cross passed from him. And so what did Jesus do? He prayed. And his prayer was marked with intensity. And we know about that prayer as he came before the the Father. And that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I don't want to suggest that this prayer is normative for us. But I do suggest that Intensity and earnestness should mark our prayers because you know what? Life is not a game. This life is not a game. It's a battle and it's marked by opposition. Little wonder Jesus' prayers were different, that they were intense. Little wonder that when the disciples overheard Jesus praying, they concluded that they didn't know how to pray, not really, and they wanted to learn how. They wanted what Jesus had. They wanted to communicate with the Father as Jesus communicated in prayer. They wanted prayer to be real and authentic, and this is what God has ordained prayer to be, and so Satan opposes it. And Satan opposes this kind of prayer in your life and in mine. He would love to render us ineffective. 
Satan would love it, love it, if nothing vital or if nothing monumental ever happened in your life, spiritually speaking, if nothing vital or monumental ever happened in this church, the best way to assure that nothing vital or nothing monumental ever happens is to make us prayerless altogether or to make sure that our prayers are wrote. I love the Lord's Prayer. Who wouldn't? It's the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to look at it in the next weeks. But never forget that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught His disciples how to pray, not what to pray. How many people through the centuries have believed that they have done right by prayer, that they have fulfilled their obligation to prayer by reciting this prayer? And how many times has this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, been recited without thought, without emotion, without fire, without engaging the heart in any way? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ho, hum. How is that different from the Jews of Jesus' day and their rote prayers? I do not mean to suggest that Jesus only hears us if we're emotional. I'm an emotional person. Have you noticed that? Get excited? It's not the case. The Lord hears prayers that are barely eked out. All I'm saying is that we've got to engage our hearts and our minds. And I'm suggesting that there should be a fire within us when we pray about such things because Satan opposes them. He opposes the advancement the kingdom of God. Our enemy does not want one more single person to believe. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Satan doesn't want anyone ever again to believe that. So we should pray harder, right? We should pray with more fervor that more people would believe. You know, the story is told of the church that asked for prayer instead of for money. And tithing went down 10%, but professions in Christ, of faith in Christ, went up 48%. We need to pray. We need to pray that we would be better and better disciples of Christ. We need to pray so that in our own lives, Christ, our Savior, would have preeminence that He might be first, that in all things in our lives He might be supreme. That's what good disciples do. We need to pray that we would be more effective in making more disciples. We need to pray. We need to pray that we and others would connect more and more to God and to the truth of God. We need to pray that we would connect with others around the gospel. And when we've connected we made this gospel connection with others that we together would go out into the city, would go out into the world, connecting the gospel with other people, bringing the good news of the gospel and the grace and the compassion and the justice of Christ to our city. These are monumental tasks. Do you believe they're monumental tasks? They are. And they face all believers through all time. They always have, and they will always face the opposition of the enemy. So that tells me this, none of these vital, none of these monumental acts 
will ever be achieved apart from prayer. So pray. And pray, pray this first. Would you pray this for me? Pray that I won't be a hypocrite. That I'll stand here in the pulpit and say, we should pray, pray, pray. And not lead our church better in prayer. Pray for the elders and the leaders of the church that we would be the first and the best and the most fervent prayers and that we wouldn't attempt anything here at Redeemer without prayer. And pray that the centrality of prayer, the idea that that prayer is vital for all things, that that idea would take hold here and spread like wildfire because when God's people began to pray, things began to change. And the converse is also as true. When people, God's people do not pray, things don't change. I'm going to close with one more quote from Samuel Chadwick. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from our prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil and mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. So let's do this. Let's make the enemy who opposes God, let's make him tremble. Tremble because his opposition to the things of God is ineffective among us because prayer is central and vital. And because prayer is so central and vital here, God's will will be done and His kingdom will come in an unstoppable way. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, help us to believe the truth that You spoke on the mountain so many years ago, the way you taught your people, your disciples, those who love and follow you, what you taught them about prayer. Lord, we don't want to give prayer lip service. We don't want it to be wrote. Lord, we want to grow in prayer. We need to grow in prayer here at Redeemer. Lord, we need to be convinced that we should attempt nothing for you apart from prayer. Lord, it's so easy for us to to put our lives on autopilot. So easy for us to put ministry on autopilot. Lord, you've given us gifts and we can use them sometimes without even coming before you. It's just what we do and, and we do it well. And Lord, so we do things. We do ministry without praying. Lord, how could we expect that anything vital would happen? Lord, vital things need to happen. Monumental things need to happen here in Charleston, and and, and I believe that they will happen as we, your people, begin to pray. So, Lord, this conviction has to come from you. It has to come from the power of your Spirit. We know one thing for sure, that our enemy wants us to dismiss these words. He wants us to forget them as soon as we have walked out the doors this afternoon. He wants us to continue in old patterns of prayer instead of becoming better and better prayers. So we pray, Lord, that in this you would have the victory, that we would become better, more fervent prayers. So we pray this and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.